Well, we are concluding our message series this morning on the church and culture. And I kind of wish we had a few more weeks uh, for it because it's such a big topic. And uh, we haven't nearly covered enough of it, but uh, maybe we can pick it up a little later in the year. We are living in a postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth culture. And if you aren't convinced yet that the world is changing... Uh, I discovered this week that we will soon be living in a post-thimble world. Uh, <laughs> yep. uh, Milton Bradley, the makers of the beloved Monopoly game, asked players around the world to vote on uh, their input, give their input on the eight original Monopoly tokens and which one should be retired. And the thimble was voted off of the board. Uh, it was seen as too out of date. Apparently, no one darns socks anymore. I don't know. But uh, so now Milton Bradley is asking for input on a uh, token to replace the thimble. And since they're asking for suggestions, here's mine. It just, you know, let's pray for our country. Let's pray for our world. If they can just, you know, get rid of the thimble, then, you know, what will be next? We, we, just, we just need to pray. But uh, seriously, our country needs prayer right now. And we need especially to pray for our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. And today, as we conclude this series, I want to talk about the challenges that kids are facing. Uh, The youth of today, the generation that I'm talking about, is called Generation Z. And we should probably start with a little background on what the different generations are. Sociologists have kind of broken down the generations uh, that are alive in the United States right now, in our nation, into five categories. Uh, Do we have a slide for that? There we go. Those born prior to 1945 are the silent generation. Twenty years ago when I started to uh, learn about this kind of thing, they were called the builders. I don't know how you you switched, if you quit talking or what. But uh, so the silent generation and then uh, 1946 to 64 is the baby boomers, all those babies that were born after World War II. Uh, And then uh, 65 to 80 is Generation X. And then 80 to 95 are the millennials or Generation Y. And then those born 1995 to 2010 are Generation Z. And they're actually the largest uh, generation ever. They even beat the baby boom, baby boomers. Um, so the Generation Z are kids that are approximately five years old to 22 years old right now. And they're growing up in a very different world from the one that we knew as children. It's a, a world and a culture that's changing at an unprecedented pace. And, you know, God loves your children. God loves the children that he's entrusted to us as a church to nurture and and to grow in in the love of Jesus Christ. And these kids are going to need a strong foundation if they're to grow up as followers of Jesus Christ in this post-Christian culture. Uh, We want that for them or we wouldn't be here. God wants that for them. Jesus said, let the little children come on to me and, you know, don't stop them. Don't get in the way. 
Uh, the kingdom of God belongs to such as this. So passing our faith on to the, our children has always been a part of God's plan for families and maybe never more and more challenging than it is in today's culture. So we're going to look at three characteristics of uh, this generation that researchers, marketing firms, universities, authors, and such have identified. And um, there are several more. In fact, I took two out because the sermon was just like 10 pages long. So, you know, I'm just narrowing it. Okay, we'll talk about that another time, another time. But we're going to talk about three characteristics that I think the church needs to understand to, to be able to help these kids in the best way possible. So I've outlined the message a little bit different today. I'm going to give you a characteristic of this generation and then talk about some uh, opportunities that that provides for us as parents and as a church uh, to help kids grow their faith in Jesus Christ and be grounded in that. So um, I'll just say at the start, too, that a lot of the statistics that come from this are from James Emery White's book, Meet Generation Z, if you want to get some more statistics on them. But the first characteristic of Generation Z is they are both cynical and hopeful about the future. Now, if, if you think about the world that these kids are growing up in, they have grown up in an era that's marred by terror and economic recession. The oldest of these kids were just young children when the images of uh, you know, September 11, 2001 began uh, filling our television screens. And it wasn't many years after that when the Great Recession hit so they've lived in a post-9-11 world where terrorist attacks and economic hardship, racial tensions and global conflict, uh, the rise of uh, groups like ISIS, these are harsh realities that is all that they've ever known. And they're concerned about the future and what it holds. Uh, does anybody know what the most popular genre of books and movies is for this generation? right now anyway dystopia right who said that right yes dystopian future I was so distressed when I saw what our granddaughter was reading but that's that's what they're all reading and um, you know they're fans of the Hunger Games World War Z if you go to the Barnes and Noble bookstore uh, and look in the teen section it's just full of these dystopian uh, future, uh, and that's talking about societies that are characterized by poverty and squalor and oppression. And in these worlds, uh, you know, um, the, the world is falling apart, but there's teens uh, who are saving the day, and they have, to, they have to rescue it. And, you know, teens today can feel like a character in a dystopian world. It's all that they've grown up with um, in the news, and it makes their future look pretty bleak. But the good news is that they don't see their future as hopeless. Uh, I was talking to our 15-year-old granddaughter who um, has read just about every dystopian novel written. And I asked her, you know, what is the attraction here? Why are, is your generation attracted to these books? And at first she said, well, they're really interesting. But then she thought a little bit and she said, because there's always a hero in the story that saves the day. And that's what I am seeing in, in this research that I'm doing, that 
kids today are empathetic. They're self-starters who want to make a difference in the, in the world. Um, five years ago, if you did a Google search for the uh, biggest fear the average American has, does anybody know what it would be? Huh? Public speaking, right. <laughs> biggest fear, public speaking. That's why I'm so nervous right now. But uh, anyway, <laughs> in 2016, it actually changed. It had been like public speaking since the 1700s, I think. But 2016, it was corrupt government followed by terrorism. But uh, does anybody know the greatest fear for Generation Z? The greatest fear for Generation Z. That they would live a life without meaning and purpose. That they want to make a difference. Because they have access to the globe, they're already finding ways to impact the brokenness that they see around them. And, you know, this gives our church, it gives parents a great bridge to help them actually be a hero in God's story. And we can help them be all that God created them to be and do the things that God's wired them to do. So I've listed some opportunities there that this creates for us as a church and as parents. So how can we help kids make a difference in the world? The first is provide opportunities for youth and children to be on mission in the world. And this is the kind of thing that the church does best, right? does well. Uh, It's uh, our strength, and it's the kind of thing that kids need to experience. If you look at YouTube or TED Talks by youth, you'll see that today's youth aren't waiting until they grow up to, to make a difference. They're writing books. They're creating apps that help dis- disabled people. They're raising funds to fight disease and poverty around the world. They're uh, uh, finding ways to dig wells in Africa, and they want to be involved. And, and we can help them do that by giving them a place to dream, to collaborate with other kids, to find the resources to be on mission in the world. And most importantly, then we can help them connect that to the scripture and why it makes an eternal difference to do these things. All right, and then the second thing, we can help them identify their areas of giftedness. God has created each child uniquely and differently, and they're going to find different ways to impact the world. And they all have a different way of being in the world. They're different personalities, different likes and dislikes. And one of the most important responsibilities as a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a, a church school worker, whatever, uh, is to help kids discover how God has uniquely wired them. Um, Proverbs 22, 6 says, Train children in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. And that training up a child in the way they should go is referring to uh, helping them to discover the way that they're created to go in life. The message translates it, Point your kids in the right direction, and and when they're old, they won't be lost. And your joy and responsibility as a parent or grandparent, uh, is to be a student of the children in your life and to recognize, help them to develop the gifts that God has given them. So on the back of your message message seat, I gave you this once, I think, three or four years ago, but um, there's a place to write the name of each of your 
children down or grandchildren or, and you know, if you're an aunt or an uncle, uh, write the kid's name down. And then below that, to list some unique things that you see about them, how that might be clues or insights into what they're wired to do and be. And then find ways to encourage them to use those gifts in the world. All right, and then C, give them significant, purposeful ways to use their creativity. These kids are really creative. And um, they've been creating on social media, YouTube videos, uh, selfies, 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 (laughs) more selfies, selfies with their friends, selfies uh, with their friends and others. But they've been doing this, and they have great creative minds. If you think about all the creative input they're getting uh, from their smartphones and television and uh, all around them, so let's help them use their creativity for God at home and in the church. And then, uh, so that's number one. They're both cynical and hopeful about the future. And then number two, they're shaped by technology. These kids have grown up with technology. They're the first generation, as Steve Job puts it, uh, to carry the Internet around in their pocket. Right? Uh, This gives them instant access to information all of the time. And, you know, this has its advantages. I remember my parents, you know, scrambling to find an encyclopedia (laughs) at a neighbor's house on Sunday night at 9. You know, nobody has to do that anymore. But uh, it has challenges, too. Their access to instant information has shaped the way that they relate to the world around them. Uh, If you're talking to them and they're texting, you know, you think they're not listening, but (laughs) they're listening and texting. Uh, Technology has changed the way that they communicate, the way that they study, the way they're entertained and interact with the world. And they've taken multitasking to a whole new level. I've watched our grandson. He's playing a video game while he's texting a friend and watching the DVD psych on his computer, you know. Uh, three things at once. In fact, the research that I was reading said that this generation prefers to be on five screens at once where their parents, the millennials, uh, are preferred just two screens. So uh, they are information consumers. They're processing data constantly. Guess what all of this information, constant data processing, multitasking on several screens has done to kids' attention span? <laughs> According to the National Center of Biotechnology Information, the average attention span for uh, youth today has dropped from 12 seconds in 2000 to 8.25 seconds in 2015. Now, uh, to put that kind of in perspective, a goldfish's attention span is nine seconds. (laughs) I don't know who studied that or figured it out, but apparently it's been documented. So if you do not capture your kid's attention in 8.25 seconds, the good news is you still have 0.75 seconds for the goldfish, but (laughs) after that, he's gone too. But 
But this does have implications about how we communicate and teach our kids. And and that's just the amount of time that they'll give you to, like, capture their attention. attention. Once you have their attention, they can go very deep. I mean, these kids uh, know how to research on the Internet if it's something that they're interested in. They, they, you know, they're smart. They're very intelligent. It's just you got to grab their attention within 8.25 seconds. And the implications of this is that as we try to communicate is uh, one advertising consultant said that if you don't use five words in a big picture, you won't reach this generation. (laughs) So how does Generation Z's use of technology impact our ministry? Well, the first thing is we have to recognize the importance of using images and technology to communicate the gospel. Uh, If a missionary goes in to uh, a Spanish-speaking area, they have to learn the language, they have to learn the culture. And like missionaries trying to communicate the gospel in a different culture, in a different language, we have to learn their language or use their language to communicate the good news of the gospel in a way that gets their attention and holds their attention. Now, I know some of you are like, you're... I, we just wish the internet had never been invented, that there was not such a thing as smartphones. You know, you just want to do away with the whole thing, and uh, at least on Sunday mornings, let's let's make them go without it. Let's do, you know, that kind of thing. But you know, we're not going to make the internet go away. Uh, we we can't make that go backwards. And this is how kids learn and communicate today. So to say we're not going to do any of that here is like saying going into a a Spanish-speaking area, and saying, okay, on Sunday morning, English is better. We know best. You've used Spanish all week. You don't need to use it here on Sunday, you know. Uh, So we have to adapt the way that we present the gospel to kids so that they can can get it. And that doesn't mean they have to be in front of a screen all the time. Uh, But we need to understand that they, their attention span, use of images, those kinds of things. All right, then B, help them ground their lives in Scripture. They have all this access to information, but many of them don't have the knowledge or the maturity. And by maturity, I don't mean, like, uh, they're immature. I mean the experience in life, the the length of life, to to discern what's true and good out there. And in a post-truth culture, uh, they don't have any plumb line to make those kinds of decisions. So we need to help them ground their faith and their life in scripture. That means reading it together at home or letting them see you read it at home or or and and or whatever and uh, get them a devotional book for their age group and teach them to take time each day to read scripture. Those kinds of things so that you're grounding their life in the scripture, and, and that's going to be so important to them because the third characteristic of Generation Z is that they're growing up in a post-Christian culture. You know, what we want most for our children and our grandchildren is that they would have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want for this generation. 
and for them to find meaning and purpose as they live their lives for him. And, you know, I, I watch you parents and your grandparents, and you're doing such a great job of uh, grounding your kids in the faith and giving them that foundation for life. And I'm going to maybe embarrass you, Shannon, but um, I just to, I know that's a sacrifice for you to drive all the way up here to practice and to bring Katie to sing, but it's something that Katie wanted to do, and Shannon is supporting her in that and helping her to develop a gift in her life. And, and those kinds of things are things that I see you all doing, and, and it's just such a wonderful gift to, to watch you all parent your kids like that and to ground them in their faith. Uh, it's, you're just doing such a great job. And they're going to need that um, as they go from the context of a Christian loving home out into the world, into college, and into the workplace. And I want to show you three short videos that give you a glimpse of the kind of things that are being taught in the universities today. Um, but it also presents some of the challenges and change, changes that these youth are facing in the world around them and that are going to happen in their lifetime. And all three videos are, <coughs> excuse me, of a history professor, Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, he's from Jerusalem University. And he decided for the sake of his students to... Um, make his class notes that he was teaching there at the university into a book so that they would have all the content they weren't having to furiously write notes and stuff. And something unexpected happened. Um, his book became a best, his book that he made for his class became a bestseller in Israel. As, as kids were like telling their friends, you got to read this, and, and it, it just spread from there. It's now been translated into 30 languages. And uh, his book, Sapien, is an international bestseller. That's his first book. In this 58-second clip that we're going to watch, he, he kind of recaps that book and explains it. And then he tells about his recently released book, Homo Deus, uh, and what it's about. So let's watch this. It's 58 seconds. Sapiens was about our past, how we transformed ourselves from insignificant apes into the rulers of planet Earth. Homo Deus is about the future, how we will try in the 21st century to transform ourselves into gods, how we will try to acquire divine abilities, like the ability to overcome old age and death, and the ability to engineer and create animals and plants and even humans according to our wishes. From Homo sapiens, wise men, we will try to upgrade ourselves into Homo Deus, God-men. Okay, so this gives us a, a picture of the possibilities that our children face in the future. And uh, he says uh, in one of his talks that this isn't centuries out. This is within the next 50 years. And the reason I think that it's important to be aware of this person and this kind of thought or teaching 
is that President Obama and Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg and uh, Bill Gates have all recommended that everybody in the United States read the, his book, Sapiens. And rather than outlining his beliefs about humans and God, I've got two short clips um, from a TED Talk that he did that kind of puts it in his own words. So we're going to watch the first one, and then I'll say a little bit. Seventy thousand years ago, humans were insignificant animals. The most important thing you need to know about our prehistoric ancestors is that they were unimportant animals. Their impact on the world was not greater than that of fireflies or jellyfish or woodpeckers. Today, on the other hand, we control this planet. And what I would like to talk about today is how exactly did we reach from there to here? How did we turn ourselves from insignificant apes minding their own business in a corner of Africa into the rulers of planet Earth? Okay, so he starts out with this premise that humans are not created in the image of God. We, we have no more significance than any other animal. And then he goes on to, set, uh, to say that what sets us apart is our ability to co-op- cooperate with one another. And other animals can't do this on large, in large-scale ways. And because we are able to cooperate, we've gained dominion. But cooperation isn't enough. Uh, Here's what he says is the real secret of our success. And I've got to cue this up because it's one big, long video. We don't have arms factories. Cooperation is not always nice. Often when we think about cooperation, we think about Sesame Streets and and teaching children to cooperate together. But all the terrible things that humans have been doing, still are doing in the world, they too are the outcome of this ability to cooperate flexibly in very, very large numbers. Now suppose I've managed to convince you that the secret of success of our species is this ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. The next question that immediately arises in the mind of an inquisitive person is how exactly humans do it? What gives us this ability to do something no other animal can do? And the answer is our imagination. Humans cooperate flexibly in large numbers because humans can create imagined realities together. All other animals 
use their communication system in order to describe reality. A chimpanzee can say, look, there was a lion, run away. Oh, look, there was a banana, let's take it. Humans can use their language not only to describe reality, but also to create new realities, to create fiction. A human can say, look, there was a lion, or look, there was a banana. But a human can also say, look, there was a God above the clouds. And if you don't do what I tell you to do, God will punish you. And if you believe this fictional story, then you will do what you are told to do. And this is the secret behind large-scale human cooperation. As long as everybody believes in the same fictional stories, everybody obeys the same laws and the same rules and the same norms. And this is something that only humans can do. You can never convince a chimpanzee to do something for you by telling him, look, if you do what I tell you to do, you know what will happen? After you die, you'll go to chimpanzee heaven. And there you'll receive lots and lots of bananas for your good deeds here on earth. So now do what I tell you to do. No chimpanzee will ever believe such a story. No chimpanzee will ever be willing to do anything for you in exchange for such promises. Only humans can believe such fictions. And this is why humans control the world, whereas chimpanzees are locked up in zoos and research laboratories. So people today, uh, in a post-truth, post-Christian culture, are trying to make sense of how the world got here and, and our place in it. And, and if God can't have any part in that story, can't be a part of that equation, then what can you say? Uh, what story can we tell in place of the story of the Bible? And Yuval's uh, words are his story, his worldview, and it's the story that is being taught in many universities and uh, what the media wants our kids to believe. And the question then is, how do we give our kids confidence in their faith that sal the salvation story that's found in the Bible is not fiction, but a foundation for life, that, that we don't have dominion because we cooperate and write good fictional stories, but because we're created in the image of God, who gave us the ability to think, to imagine, to create, to build, to explore the world that he created. So how can we help Generation Z navigate life with faith in Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing is teach your children that they have reason to believe. Uh, know the reasons for faith yourself. Uh, get an apologetics book. Uh, get, uh, and there's new apologetics books, by the way. You don't have to go back to the 1800s. Um, and know the science behind faith. Researchers like George Barna have found that the past two generations of kids who grew up in the church, uh, one out of ten quit attending church or seeing faith as important after they went to college or while they were, by the time they were sophomores in college. And 
When asked why they left, the answers varied, of course. Uh, some people said they just couldn't make room for it in their schedule. And this is something we can teach kids too, right? Uh, to make room for church and faith in their schedule. But the number one reason the vast majority reported was that they had unanswered questions about their faith. They couldn't defend their faith in the light of science. And, and that's unfortunate because we have scientific reasons to believe uh, in a creator. There are extremely intelligent physicists and astronomers and doctors and so on who, who believe that God created the universe. And there's evidence for this. And if we don't ground our kids' faith in facts, then we leave them open for being part of that 90% who are floundering, uh, not knowing what they believe, and in danger of walking away from the faith. And then the second thing we can do is invite, invite, invite. We don't want just our kids to have that foundation. We, we, we care about this whole generation. And there are so many kids whose parents just don't see the value of faith. And um, one of the characteristics of, about Generation Z is they are very social. And they would uh, be very open to an invitation to church. I see, like, Brooklyn. Uh, how many kids have started to come to church because of Brooklyn's invitation? She's just uh, very invitational. And this gives uh, this her friends, other kids, a chance to um, experience life in Jesus Christ. And not only the kids, but the possibility of their parents then uh, coming to faith in Christ. And then the third thing is to cultivate a vital, alive faith in Jesus Christ yourself. You know, if, if they don't see that it's important in your life, that it cha- is changing you and transforming you, if it's just about sitting in a pew on Sunday and that's it, it doesn't make any difference the rest of the week, then... Um, that's not going to impact your your children. They need to know that living for Jesus is the most exciting adventure of life, that Jesus is real and his promises are true. Uh, Two weeks ago, I asked for prayers for our grandson, Jonah. Uh, His best friend, Gabe, has seizures, and he was in a hot tub by himself, had a seizure, and drowned. And, uh, of course, that was a shock and a loss uh, for Jonah and his classmates. And so the next day, 10 of his friends came over um, and just hung out together. They didn't know what to do with it, you know, especially here's 10 senior guys. Uh, they don't know what to do with all the emotions and everything that's involved with uh, that kind of a loss. And like Jonah, um, most of them had never experienced a sudden loss like that. So here are these 10 senior guys, and Charity's trying to... <laughs> comfort them. And when there aren't any words to comfort, really, um, the next thing you can do is order pizza, right? <laughs> so, so she did that. And then a, a few days later, Charity uh, went with Jonah and their, her family to Gabe's visitation. And uh, several of the girl classmates were there. And of course, they're crying and the boys are doing their best not to cry. And Charity's comforting and holding these girls and uh, trying to help everybody through it. And after the visitation, she invited the whole crew of them out to pizza. And one of the boys, uh, Robbie, joked with her, and she sa- he said, I think that you're trying to fix us with pizza. 
And of course, pizza helps by giving them a place to gather together and share memories, to share a table, to laugh together with those who are grieving. But everyone knows that pizza can't fix death. And last week we talked about this post-truth culture and the uh, that we live in and the loss of truth with a capital T. And the most undeniable, objective, absolute truth that's true for everyone is this. Everybody dies. The mortality rate is 100%. And everybody has hard times in life. This is true for you. It's true for me. And Generation Z is a generation growing up without an anchor for life's storms. And we can point fingers at politicians and universities and philosophers and media and Hollywood, but that doesn't solve the problem that our kids face. A world without God, a world without Jesus, is a world without hope. Uh, Colossians 1.17 says this, He, uh, being Jesus, existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. When the storms of life hit, our kids need to know, need more than a story about how human beings rose from the status of fireflies and woodpeckers to rule the world. They need to know that there is a ruler who rules the world. A king of kings, a lord of lords, who calmed the sea uh, on Gal- in Galilee with a word who calms the storms in their life who holds everything together when everything seems to be falling apart. As we close this series, I think that this scripture is a good reminder for us that whatever changes we see around us, God knows, and God is still God. There is no reason to be afraid of what the future holds because we know who holds the future. And we, uh, he will continue to watch over and guide our children and our grandchildren because God is a God of every culture, of every time, of every generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you. I thank you for uh, this church and for the children you've entrusted to us. They're precious to us. They're precious in your sight. Um, We know that they're your treasure, and we treasure them too. And we ask that you'll help us to do our very best, to give our best resources, our time, and our love uh, in every way possible, God, that they can have that foundation for their future, uh, to know you and have you by their side through all of life. And whatever lies ahead, God, we pray that you'll walk with each one, that you'll bless them, that you'll watch over them, guard and protect them, and most of all, that you'll make yourself real to them so that they would know you and love you and spend eternity with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.